Well, good morning. And if you're joining us online, good morning to you too. We're just glad that you're joining us wherever you're at. And my name is Dave, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's great to be together this morning. Uh, Michael, where are you? I can't see you. The lights are behind. I don't know if it bothered you, but I got to say, it's kind of unfair that the kids were like at the top of the service, right? And then we have to follow that because I tell you, it kind of just only just goes downhill from there, right? Oh, they're wonderful. They're so cute and it's just awesome. Um, if you hadn't heard, there were new public health orders that were given out on Friday, and so you might be curious, how does that affect the church? And I was online with a whole bunch of my pastor friends. We were all watching this, texting each other back and forth. And the public health orders that we are under are those that were given on December the 1st, and so those just remain that uh, we are at 50% capacity, and so we're wearing our masks, and our ushers are just going to keep account. And if we have more than our 50% capacity. We have an overflow room, and we will decide on that. But there's no new public health orders that affect us currently from those as of December 1st, and for that, I'm grateful. Um, yeah, as Michael announced, we are having, on December 24th, our Christmas Eve service, a 4 p.m. with childcare, and then a 6 p.m. Uh, without. If you would like to help out with childcare, Brenda could certainly use your help. But I've also heard that the 6 p.m. tends to be a little bit more of the... Uh, less attended, so that might be a good one if you're thinking of coming and bringing people to come to the 6 p.m. so that we can even it out a bit more. Well, I didn't think it would come this quickly, but I have a confession to make to you, a little secret that may unsettle you. There was a time that I did not love Christmas. <gasps> I know what you're thinking. This is scandalous. He's a pastor. How could this be? He did not love Christmas. It's just not right. Like, seriously, didn't the search committee do their reference checks on this guy? But you see, it wasn't always this way. There was a time that I loved Christmas. You know, counting down the days with my advent calendar. You know that cheap waxy chocolate that comes behind each door, right? Just like the sweet moments savoring Christmas is coming. Or on Christmas Eve, right? showing up to church, singing the carols, sporting my new Christmas sweater, the one gift that we were allowed to open on Christmas Eve, right? But somewhere along the lines, my excitement, my anticipation, they were replaced with other feelings. Feelings not sung in those Christmas songs played on the radio. Feelings not printed in Christmas Hallmark cards. And I'm not sure what it was that caused me to lose my love for Christmas, but I think it had something to do with a shift in focus. I think it was about getting caught up in other things, like the busyness of the season and other competing desires, other competing expectations. It got so bad that one year at the church that I was working at before coming to Calvary, I suggested that we have other Advent themes than our traditional ones for Christmas that year. The ones that I suggested, they were disappointment, hurry, lighting the candle, a family feud, and of course, unmet expectations. Fa-la-la-la-la, la-la-la-la. But of course, you know, I'm kidding, well, kind of. Though I did struggle in the past with these mixed feelings around the holidays, I decided I needed to make a commitment not to let these things get the best of me and to concentrate on the true meaning of Christmas, right? The birth of our Savior and the blessings that Jesus brings in those traditional Advent themes that we're celebrating, 
the ones of joy, peace, hope, and of course, love. And it's this last theme that we're talking about this morning, God's love for us. Because when it comes down to it, Christmas is really all about God's love, isn't it? Christ came because he loves us. He came because he loves us enough to die for us so that we could be forgiven of our sins, rescued from death, and be reconciled to God. And in this morning's scripture, we're reminded that when you and I, when we celebrate Christmas, we're actually celebrating God's love, and the only way to truly celebrate is by loving one another. To celebrate Christmas in the most authentic way is to love one another. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open them to 1 John chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 7 to 12 this morning. The Apostle John writes, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Well, thanks be to God for his word. So the apostle John who wrote this letter wrote it to the church in the city of Ephesus. And this was a church that was struggling, struggling with matters of leadership, but also with some things that were being taught amongst their fellowship. They had, a, they had significant theological differences within their congregation. Certain people had rejected the orthodox traditional teachings about Jesus, and this had caused a split in the church. And there were people taking others in their community down the road of Gnosticism. Now, a quick survey of 1 John reveals to us what these false beliefs that these Gnostics held and what they were promoting. In 1 John 2, it says that they denied the Son. So they didn't recognize Jesus as God. Secondly, they denied that Christ had come in the flesh, that he was incarnate. And finally, they denied that Jesus is the Christ. They denied that he was the one to bring salvation to humankind. But interestingly enough, though these people denied all these essential things about Jesus, they would still say that they were Christians. Even though the incarnate Christ was no longer occupying the central place of their faith or in their lives. If the church had celebrated Christmas in their early days, these Gnostics, they would not be celebrating Christmas for the same reasons that you and I do, right? But that shouldn't really surprise us because many people still today, though they identify as Christian and they celebrate Christmas, Christ does not occupy the central place in their faith or in their lives either. But can you imagine the tension 
and the hostility that these false teachers and their message created within the church with those who remained faithful to Jesus as it split their church and took some of their loved ones away. That is the setting for this letter, and it's in this context which John writes to exhort the faithful to show love because the faithful believers, they were responding to those who split the church with hostility. But just because our theology is correct by no means justifies hostile attitudes. Just because we have correct theology, it doesn't justify hostile attitudes. One of my favorite modern-day theologians, his name is Fun, it's Preston Sprinkle. He says that just because if we get the Bible right but love wrong, we're still wrong. Maybe it's not surprising to you that John has to take time in his letter to remind the church that they are to love each other. Because really, shouldn't this be a given? That Christ followers are people who love. That one of the distinctive features of the church is that the love we have for one another and anybody who comes through those doors. I mean, like, we're certainly going to have our disagreements, that's for sure, and there are going to be beliefs that you and I hold to that others won't understand or accept, but shouldn't someone who even spends a little bit of time in our midst, regardless of whether they're a Christ follower or not, be able to recognize that the church, this group of Jesus people, that we are full of love for one another and the world? The answer is yes, they should. But too often, reality says no. Too often what's seen in the church are factions, people who are dissatisfied that things aren't going their way or the way they want them to, and gossips who tear people down behind their backs. Too often what the world sees in the church are groups of people who are unwilling to forgive those who sit just a few pews in front of them, and instead of the love that casts out fear, the church displays its fear in the form of indifference, agitation, and anger. When others with a different lifestyle or a theology walk through our doors or are found in our midst. And I have to confess that I've been guilty of this in the past too. And probably I wouldn't be too far off the mark saying that that there are some who are listening to me right now who have struggled with this in the past as well. That's why I think this is such an important message, not just to the church in Ephesus back in John's day, but also to Christ's people today. Verse 7 says, Let us love one another, for love comes from God, and whoever does not love does not know God. And we want everyone to know God, don't we? So love is imperative. So what does it mean then to love one another? Love is not a simple thing in our day, right? We hear this phrase, well, love is love, but it's it's not simple. It means a whole lot of different things, and it's used in a whole bunch of different contexts, right? There's the love between couples and the love between friends. There's the love that some people have for, like, their pets. Some people even claim to love their favorite sports team or a certain musician. Some people even love a pair of shoes, you know? Uh, I've even met people who claim to love running. It's sick, I know, but you know, it's true. (laughs) Shout out to Robert. I know you might be listening. (laughs) So, the love, though, that the Apostle John is talking about here 
This is different from all of those. This love is much greater, much deeper, and it is far better. There's a story that author Stephen Covey tells about a conference that he was speaking at that I think helps us to understand this kind of love that the Apostle John is getting at. He says that a man came up to him and said, Stephen, I like what you're saying about love, but every situation is so different. Look at my marriage, for example. I'm really worried about it. My wife and I just don't have the same feelings for one another that we used to. I guess I just don't love her anymore, and she doesn't love me. What can I do? The feeling isn't there anymore, Covey asked. That's right, the man replied. What do you suggest? Love her, Covey replied. But I told you, the the feeling isn't there anymore. So love her, he repeated. You don't understand. The feeling of love just isn't there. Then love her. If the feeling isn't there, that's a good reason to love her. Exasperated, the man said, but how do you love when you don't love? Covey replied, my friend, love is a verb. Love, the feeling, is a fruit of love, the verb. So love her, serve her, sacrifice to, for her, listen to her, empathize and appreciate her, affirm her. Are you willing to do that? And I think, like Covey's explanation, John's description of love for us this morning, it is far more than a feeling. It is an unconditional commitment to act in love regardless of the circumstances. It's an unconditional commitment to act in love whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. Verse 8 says, God is love. This doesn't just mean that God is loving, though that is true. It also is just not saying that one of God's activities is to love us, though this is also true. But by saying that God is love, John is saying that all of God's activity is loving, and that love is the essence of God's being. All of his activity is loving, and it is the essence of his being. And this particular love, that is the essence of God's being, it can only be found in those who know him, because as we begin to know God, we cannot help but become like him. That's why the text says that everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God, and whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. You see, knowing God and having this specific kind of love, they are inseparable. You cannot have one without the other. This doesn't mean that non-Christians cannot love. Of course they do. But the text is saying that the specific kind of love that is to be embodied in the life of every believer and that should be flowing throughout our church is a kind of love that only comes from an intimate relationship with the Heavenly Father. So, what kind of love is this that John is talking about? I see four aspects that describe this love in this morning's passage. First of all, verse 9 tells us that this love is sacrificial and costly. It's sacrificial and costly. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Now, I remember when Andrea and I were dating, 
I thought that I knew what sacrificial, costly love was as I scrimped and saved in order to buy her the engagement ring. And sometimes I even think I understand what sacrificial love is as I sacrifice to try to be a, a good husband or a good father. But all of this pales in comparison to the sacrifice and price that the father paid because of his love for you and me. I could not imagine sending either of my sons out of my presence, on top of that, knowing the pain and the sacrifice and even death that they would face. But does that not tell us how much our Father in heaven loves us? How much Christ loves us, being willing to endure all of that, to sacrifice just in order that we could draw near to him? Only God's love could be that sacrificial and that costly. However, we are called to follow his example in the way that we are to love others. I remember growing up seeing my parents, like watching them and how they showed their love for one another. And they showed sacrificial love for each other in, in just really little ways, right? Like my mom, she would make dinners that I knew she did not enjoy, but she made them because they were my dad's favorite, right? Or my dad, he would say to me and my brothers, okay, we out of the rec room, because that's where the large, you know, 24-inch color TV was, right? To let mom watch her show or practice piano, and we would have to go up to the kitchen, all huddled around the 10-inch black and white TV to finish watching the Canucks game, right? Like, sacrificial love. But I've seen that kind of sacrificial love on display here at our church, right? On Tuesday nights when I drop my son off, I see the youth leaders who are here investing time into our students. Throughout the week, CSB and Girls Club volunteers who spend time with children. Or even on Sunday mornings, all the people that take sacrificing their time and their talents just to make services like this happen. Right, this last Tuesday, I got to spend the whole evening with our elders as they discussed and prayed and about you and how they could bless you and encourage you and, and the work that they could put into to growing our church. Right? Being a church elder, that is not a fun job. It is difficult, but I was just taken back by they sacrifice and serve because they love us so much. And seeing all the ways that the people in our church sacrifice the time and their abilities and their talents and resources, serving out of love for God, but also out of love for one another, it's so encouraging to me. We love each other by, in, by imitating this sacrificial way that God loves us. In Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul describes this love as not looking to our own interests, but to the interests of others. That I'm giving up my rights and preferences out of love for you. That you're giving up your demands and your claims to what you think you deserve out of love for me. As Christmas approaches and we celebrate how Jesus gave up the privileges of heaven, that he made himself Nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, coming as that little baby born into a manger. And so just like he did, love for us means that we give up things that really cost us. And so the first thing we see about this love is that it is sacrificial and it is costly. The second thing I see about it is that it is not conditional on whether we love him. In verse 10, it says, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son 
So God loved us before we ever loved him. We didn't do anything to earn his love or do anything deserving of it, and there is nothing that can separate us from God's love. And because he loved us without condition, then we are to love one another in the same way, to love each other even when we disagree, that I love you even when I don't like your choices, that you love me even if you don't like my style, right? That the love we have for one another, it's not based on any sort of arbitrary conditions or criteria that we set for one another, but that our mutual love, it is founded in our common faith in Christ and what God's love is like for us. Now, perhaps, as I'm talking about this, someone, in, someone comes to mind for you, someone that you are struggling to act in love with right now in your life, and there's a part of you in your mind, you think, well, they're just not deserving of it. The truth is that none of us are deserving of God's love, yet he chose to love us despite how undeserving we are. Thank God. Thank God that he loves us despite how undeserving we are. So not only does God love us without condition, but verse 10 also shows us that God's love, it takes the initiative. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, when Andrew and I sometimes get into an argument, sometimes a part of me just wants to just wait and let her come to me, right? Because gosh darn it, I'm right. At least in almost 19 years of marriage, there's got to be a couple times that I've been right, right? Yeah, at least. But you know, God doesn't do that. He didn't wait for us to realize, oh, we wronged him and, and that we've been unfaithful and then we come crawling back to him. God never did that. He takes the initiative. He's been right all along, yet he didn't wait for us to come and ask for forgiveness or earn it. God took the initiative to extend forgiveness to us, to show us his great love. And so, God's love is sacrificial and costly. It's without condition and it takes the initiative. And the third attribute of this love that makes up the essence of God that we see from this passage is that God's love, it is life-giving and brings forgiveness. It is life-giving and brings forgiveness. Verse 9 and 10 say that he sent his son into the world that we might live through him. And as an atoning sacrifice for sins. So our love for one another in this place and for those who are outside of these walls, it should also be life-giving and extend forgiveness, just like our fathers does. So let me ask you, brothers and sisters, are we blessing one another? Are we quick to give an encouraging word? Or are we being judgmental? which is pretty easy to do. But our love should be life-giving, healing, restorative. I've often heard people say to me that uh, we can love people without liking them. Not sure exactly what they mean by that when they say that, but rather it leads me to a question. How are you treating people? How are we treating people that we claim to love but we don't like? 
Are we holding grudges? Are we slandering them? You know, a few weeks ago, I spoke on Colossians 3, where the Apostle Paul insists that believers rid themselves of angry, divisive speech. And if we don't heed Paul's advice, if we insist on holding on to our grudges, you know, and refuse to forgive other people, then we cannot claim to have the love of God which gives life within us while our actions continue to suck the life right out of other people. We can't claim to have the love of God in us that gives life if we are sucking the life out of others. See, Jesus gave us this amazing opportunity to be his followers, to be his people representing him, giving us his spirit. We can be his example. We are empowered by his spirit to be like Jesus. And like Jesus, we can bring healing to people who are hurting to honor those who are marginalized and poor in spirit. It doesn't take, you know, lots of gifts or money or talent to do this. We can do this with our words, with our actions, as we partner with the Spirit in restoring people and giving life to others as we bless and forgive people. So God's love, it is sacrificial and costly. It's not conditional. It takes the initiative and it's life-giving and brings forgiveness. And it can be kind of hard to imagine, well, how will this divine love look in my life? Like, how will it play out as I interact with other people? And when I think about that, there's a certain scene from a movie that pops into my head. If you've seen the movie, I'm going to butcher this because my French is terrible, Les Miserables, Oliver, is that right? Okay, it's horrible. Les Mis, for short. Um, in this movie, there's this character, his name is Jean Valjean, and he is a criminal who's just been released from prison, and this one night, he is taken in by this bishop who gives him lodging and food and shelter. But in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean, he wakes up, he sneaks down to the kitchen, and he starts to steal the silverware, thinking that everybody in the house is asleep. But the bishop's awake, and he surprises him, and Jean Valjean knocks the bishop out. He takes the silverware, and he runs. However, the authorities catch up with him. They discover the silverware, which he claims the bishop gave to him, and so under arrest, they take him back to the bishop's home, and they retell the story that the, bishop, that the Jean Valjean gave to them. But when the police questioned the bishop about Valjean's story, he says, indeed, he did give him the silver. And on top of that, he begins to chastise Jean Valjean for not also taking the silver candlesticks, which are worth a lot of money. At this point, the police have no other option but to release Jean Valjean, even though they think the story is very unlikely. And Jean Valjean finds himself standing there with the bishop with a question, why? Why did you not press charges? Why did you let me have the silverware and on top of that, give me the candlesticks too? And in this moment, the bishop, he leans in close and in a low voice, he says, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I have bought your soul. I have ransomed you from fear and hatred and now I give you back to God. You see, the bishop shows Jean Valjean the kind of love that the Apostle John exhorts you and I to have for one another. His love is sacrificial and costly. It wasn't based on any conditions. It wasn't earned. 
Jean Valjean didn't deserve his love, and yet the bishop gave it to him, and this love was life-giving and brought forgiveness. And if you were to watch the rest of this film, you would see that this was the turning point in the life of Jean Valjean, that this was the impetus for him becoming a generous and kind man and no longer walking down the path of being a hardened criminal. And you see, this is just what God's love does for us. This is the fourth attribute I see of this love. It transforms us. It not only delivers us from darkness to light, but it changes our character and how we treat others. We love them because Christ first loved us. And this is the love that God offers each and every one of us. This unearned, sacrificial, costly love. But if you receive it, you got to be prepared to give it because it will transform you. I spoke about how at the beginning of this message that there was that time that I started to not love Christmas anymore. When I lost my focus on what this was really all about, how I got distracted by other things. But John reminded me that Christmas, it's all about how God showed his love among us sending his one and only son into this world. And since he loved us, then we ought to love one another. So let's not lose focus this Christmas. Let's not get distracted by all these other things. Let's remember that the best way to truly celebrate God's love for, one an- for, for us is by loving one another. You know, for some sermons, the application can be a little vague, Right? Uh, it can be difficult to know how we put this into practice, but when it comes to loving others, each and every one of us has other people in our lives to love, and we all have people that we need to work a little harder at loving. So this applies to all of us. Maybe you don't like my sermon this morning, so I'm the first person you got to show love to. See, it's this call for us to examine or to re-examine our actions. Sometimes we can say or do things that hurt other people, and we tell ourselves, you know, like, even though uh, we hurt them, we're just being honest, and that we do love them. But I would challenge each one of us to pay close attention to our motives, but also pay close attention to the feelings of other people. If what we're saying is love, if our actions towards other people are love, but they don't look like love, it's not being received as love, and it certainly doesn't feel like love, chances are, friends, it's not love. Let's not try and pass our actions off as something that they're not, because this is a very important matter. We need to remember, though, that even though we might be right, if we get love wrong, we're still wrong. One of the best things that I think that we can do for one another to show each other love is to pray for one another, especially for those we find hard or difficult to love. Praying for them, not only is it a very caring action, but it also allows God to transform our hearts for those people, to begin to see them as the people that he loves dearly. And if I, what I said earlier, that this love that we are to possess only comes from this intimate relationship with God, the remedy for those of us who are struggling to act in Christ-like love then is to seek God. 
is to spend time with him and to ask him to transform us into his image so that we can love others just as he loves us. I want to invite the worship team to come on up. And would you stand with me and will we pray together? Oh, great God of love, we are so thankful for all that you've done for us. It is with grateful hearts uh, that we confess that we are un undeserving of your love, and yet you, just, you don't just give it to us. You just lavish it down upon us. You pour it upon us, and we are so thankful for that. Help us not to be like like those, that stingy servant that Jesus talks about in the parable who receives forgiveness but then goes out and he finds somebody who owes him something and he exacts it from them. But help us to be thankful, grateful, loving receivers of God's grace who long to go out and to bless others as we pour it out onto them because the love you gave us, it pours over, it overflows, and so we have plenty to give. May we be known as the people who love greatly because we are loved by a great God. In whose name we pray, amen.